0: Hey everyone, my name is Jason West, and this is PodClass. So, what's new with you? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the show has been on a bit of a hiatus for a minute, and uh, I'll get into a little bit why I've been gone for so long. Um, I'm going to get more into details next week, just because uh, the show is already hitting the two-hour mark, and so I don't want to go too far past that time. But um, yeah, so was waiting on a pretty big announcement regarding the show, and that announcement is still pending. Um, I don't know if you have read, uh, some obscure news outlets are, are covering it, but the entire world has essentially tilted on its axis, and uh yeah we are quarantining in our house education is a whole new wild wild west type landscape and we are all doing our best i had about five or six episodes already recorded a couple months ago and was again waiting on this big announcement before i released these new episodes But like I said, because everything is on hold still, uh, I've decided to just go ahead and release the last six episodes that I had recorded before moving on to season three and hopefully moving forward with the 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 big update. But again, wish I could tell you more, but there's nothing to tell you right now. But these episodes, (laughs) it's funny because uh, you know normally I record shows couple weeks, maybe even a month or so ahead of time. And when the timing is right, I release them out. And uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. These episodes are recorded just a few months ago, and it feels like, boy, does it feel like a couple of lifetimes ago. The world is such a different place. Education is such a different concept. Uh, So what I went ahead and did was I took these old episodes and rather than just throwing them out and saying, oh, well, I think there's a lot of really good and important things that were in these episodes. But because it feels so weird to listen to something that, you know, almost seems like a a foreign world at this point, uh, what I decided to do and what my guests were very gracious enough to do was that I would call them all back up and do a teleconference with them and ask them about how things are going uh, and if their opinions have changed in the few, brief few months since our initial interviews took place. So my very special guest today is school board member Megan Kerr. She's a board member for the third largest school district in California, something like the 42nd largest in the entire country, so kind of a big deal. And you'll see that this interview structure is a little different. We are going to bounce back and forth from our initial interview to our most recent interview that we just had a few days ago. Going to talk about where education has come in just these very brief days. I mean, it's been five weeks, and yet it feels, again, like it may as well have been five years ago. Uh, So, again, great big thanks to... Megan Kerr and all of my guests for being gracious enough to come back and do a Redux interview. So normally this is where we would do the fake commercial and the tea capping of the week, but because everything is so new, I didn't want to uh, overload everyone with too many things. So let's just go ahead and get the show started and we'll try to find a way to come back to normal with next week's episode, shall we? All right, so here we go. All right, I am sitting here uh, doing a lot of away games this season. normally I have uh, my guests come to me but uh, I'm interviewing some really important people this season I'm really excited to have as uh, my guest today school board member Megan Kerr welcome to the show
1: Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I am well
0: so just to start off because and this is really embarrassing <laughs> because I have been in education for over a decade and I cannot succinctly, answer the following question if anyone were to ask me this. So uh, I say with trepidation because it's so embarrassing, what the heck is a board of education?
1: That's a great question. (laughs) And it is one of those things that's an intangible that we hear about. Um, So in Long Beach and in many other places, the board of education is an elected body that has three main tasks in a school district. Um, The first is to hire, evaluate, and determine the future of superintendents. The second is to approve the budget. And the third is to set policy overarching for the school
0: district. So I know you've sort of explained what they do, but why are they necessary? So I'm asking that because you have a superintendent, right? Why can the why is it not the superintendent's job to approve the budget and set the direction of the district? Why is it so important to have a school board?
1: So the school board is accountable to the taxpayers. So in the public system, a superintendent is doing the day-to-day management of a district, but there has to be someone to whom that person is accountable. And so as an elected body representing the taxpayers who pay for public education, we have the responsibility to make sure that the superintendent is carrying out um, goals that are best for the community, uh, managing the school district in a way that is equitable, Um, And so it's that public accountability piece for public dollars.
0: Okay, so we are here with, and I'm not really sure what to call you. Do I call you present day Megan, into the future post quarantine Kerr? I'm not (laughs) not really sure how 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 to reference you, but welcome back. Thank you for coming uh, back on the show. So uh, how have you been besides teleconferencing? What is something you have done more during this quarantine than you ever had done before?
1: Uh, I am certainly home more than I have been, I think, since my kids were very, very little. So being confined to the house has reminded me of some things I knew before and taught us some new lessons around, you know, taking care of each other, Um, my kids are young adult kids. They are 19, 21, and just turned 24 on Sunday. And so they're very different humans than they were the last time I spent this much time with all three of them. So it's been good. Um, And also having my husband work from the kitchen all day, every day has added to that experience. But we are fortunately healthy and well in the midst of a really crazy time.
0: Well, that's, that's really good to hear. And I promise I'm not going to call you present day Megan. Cause I just realized that that sounds like a failed right. NBC sitcom. <laughs> so we just listened to your explanation of what a school board does. How has the school closure impacted your day-to-day work as a school board?
1: You know, it is, I think like teachers and students and families are experiencing, it upends it in a way we couldn't imagine. Um, Popping over to a school, hearing how students are doing in a classroom is the norm. And so what we're dealing with now is so completely different. Um, The inability to do the thing that at the basis of our work, which is the relationship piece, has to be done in a way that is not organic. It is uh, much more forced. So to meet with my colleagues via Zoom, to have conversations around really important things, including a superintendent search, has been very different and feels unnatural. But as we get into week four and five of this, starting to feel like a new normal that I'm not super comfortable with.
0: Yeah, the, the last time we spoke, you know, I made this whole big deal about how I, I brought my whole system over to your office and I was meeting you in, in in your space to conduct this interview. And now here we are doing this kind of remote, faceless, you know, I, I, I have no idea, uh, you know, what expression you're making uh, or, or how any of this is being received because we're not near one another but it's oddly becoming part of the habit of just sort of being separate from one another. I know we're doing a lot of Zoom and Google Meet so we can actually see one another, but we can also just turn our cameras off and participate in those meetings. And it's still just this faceless voice coming back to you.
1: It's been interesting hearing stories, um, especially of our families that are accessing meals at this time, how important it has been, especially in the first week or two, For them to go back to their school, especially the little guys, to see the school is still there, the staff is still working, Mm -hmm. and how important just that one-minute interaction with a familiar face is so helpful um, and brings a lot of life and a lot of joy because we're so used to it. I think we took it for granted in a way that these were folks that we saw every day, and those interactions that seemed small really are something that we find a lot of hope in right now.
0: The idea that you now have to schedule in time to have personal conversations with students, whereas normally it was something that you would just kind of have in the doorway as they're walking in or, you know, in between passing periods. Oh, you know, did you see this movie? Oh, how was the game? That kind of thing. But now it's like everything is so scheduled. Because there's not a lot of live, natural interactions. And again, that's just like new, very uncomfortable normal that we're sort of dealing with of, oh, I'll have office hours and you can just show up and, you know, online and you can ask me for uh, help with the work or we can just kind of talk about life. Uh, But having like a scheduled time to interact with our students is is very-
1: Right. And how much we learn about how people are doing- other than the sound of their voice and their body language, how they interact with the people who are closest to them. There are so many things that tell us how students and staff are doing that you can't schedule. And so making those efforts to really connect with people in a way that gets to the heart of how people are actually doing and not how they say they're doing at their 4.30 conference call, I think is something we're all learning how to do better.
0: What made you want to become a school board member? Were you just kind of always in life the person who is, you know, making sure that everyone is following the rules and doing the right thing, or?
1: Um, I'd like to say no, but there was probably a (laughs) bit of that. So just a little bit of my history. So I'm born and raised here in Long Beach and I have three children who are graduates of Long Beach Unified. So I was a parent in the district for 17 years across those three children. Um, I personally did not go to public school, so born and raised in Long Beach and attended Catholic school. So I went to a K-8 Catholic school and went to St. Anthony High School in downtown Long Beach. But when it was time for my three children to go to school, even though I was still connected to the church that I grew up in, uh, my husband and I decided and really believed that the best opportunity for our kids was going to be in the public school system. So we chose public school.
0: Now, Now, why is that? Was it just reflecting on your experience? Did your husband go to public school?
1: He went to Catholic school, he went to public school through fifth grade. He went to Grant Elementary in North Long Beach. He was born and raised in North Long Beach and then transferred into Catholic school for sixth grade and high school. So I think we knew families who had had kids who were a couple of years older than our kids and we had watched some of them go to the Catholic schools and some of them go to the public schools. But I think where we were personally, we just knew that the best choice for our kids was in public school. I actually had a friend who had gone through public or Catholic school with me who had children the same age. Um, Mm -hmm. And we were two of our friends who were choosing to send our kids to public school. So it was a very intentional choice Mm -hmm. um, based on what we knew to be true about the Long Beach Unified School District and all of the opportunities that were available to our children and that they were gonna receive a stellar education, that there wasn't um, a point that we decided that the Catholic tradition would override any of those other decisions. So for us personally, it was a really clear and easy choice.
0: Hmm. And you weren't a board member at that time anyway, I was
1: not I've only been I'm entering my sixth year school year as a
0: board member. So what career were you in before? Was it in any way related to education? Or I'm just fascinated by how people sort of move into these you Know powerful decision making positions, positions correct? Yeah. So,
1: so your original question was, um, why am I here? Sure, and so I, uh, my husband and I got married, I was still finishing college, and at the time, childcare was more expensive for us as a very young yeah. couple just out of college than staying home. So, I had have the another reason
0: to have public school, by the way, yes, childcare so is expensive. Have,
1: I had the opportunity to stay home um, with my children. And when my youngest, my oldest was about 18 months old, we started at the Child Development Center at Long Beach City College, Mm -hmm. which at that time was a parent participation program. So I was required to go and work in the classroom one day a week as part of the ability for them to go to preschool. And we did that with all three kids. So all three of my children um, were in preschool four to five days a week. Um, for the price of one unit at Long Beach City College and one day of Mm. my working in the classroom and taking a parent education class. So I was the enrolled student. And it was a fabulous program that doesn't exist that I will cheer on any day if Long Beach City College wants to continue to do that work. But I had the habit then of being in the classroom. So when they transitioned into public school, I said, I'm available. What can I do in the classroom? So I was one of those parents who had the opportunity to volunteer in the classroom, volunteer in the library as they get old, as they got older, working on green teams. Um, I also did-
0: what, some, what are what are green teams? So Sorry. green teams
1: were the environmental teams that worked in school. So parents who volunteered to do recycling. And mm-hmm. so in the earlier days, probably about 10, 12 years ago of that work in the district, I got to be a part of that. I was also volunteering um, for a domestic violence shelter. I'd been trained as a domestic violence um, volunteer as a hospice volunteer, at Miller Children's as a volunteer. So I was really surrounding myself with fe- work yeah, around families. You were all
0: in the community.
1: I was all in the community yeah. and the schools were part of that at the time. And I was approached in 2012, maybe. So my my kids were at that time 12, 14 and 16. Um, and it was suggested to me that I should consider running for school board. And it wasn't anything I had ever considered. Hmm. I had just been in the classrooms doing the work, and not just—it's important work—to work alongside the educators who are doing um, the important work of educating kids every day.
0: What? Sorry to interrupt, but what what exactly is that situation like uh, to be approached to run for office? Because, you know, in my cynical view, it, you know, you get these rich, powerful people, and they pull you in a. Uh, one of those back rooms with cigars and everyone's with the power and they're like, we're inviting you in to uh, make you an offer (laughs) and you know, the the super packs and all that. Obviously it's local government, but how does that work? Who who approaches you? How how does that consideration come into play for your family?
1: So Mary Stanton, who was the board member representing the area that I lived in at the time, saw me outside of Longfellow elementary school one day. So she was there uh, either for work or for visiting her grandkids. And she stopped me on the sidewalk outside and said, I know that you're really involved, and I know that you do good work, and I would really like you to consider this, since I am choosing not to run again. Mm. So it was this, it was not in a back room; it was yeah. literally on the public sidewalk <laughs> outside of Longfellow Elementary School, not inside the school in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um. And it caught me off guard, and I.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, thank you like... very
1: much for considering me and noticing the work that I was doing and thinking that I had the potential to be a leader. And when I uh, talked to a friend who worked in the system, they said, absolutely, you should consider that. And when I talked to my husband when I went home, he said, you absolutely should consider that. Wow. So it was not, being elected was not anything that was ever in my trajectory. I didn't um, have visions of being an elected official at any point until that
0: moment. So you go from you know making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches doing parking or, you know, drop off duty, volunteering, all that stuff. And now you're going to run a campaign. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: How does that work? Do you, you know, I mean, I literally would, I have not the faintest idea. If somebody were to say, Jason, we want you to run for something, I would have no idea what to do. Do, I'm going to ask my cousin, would you be my uh, campaign manager? Like, I don't know how that would even work.
1: So six years later, I certainly know a lot more about campaigns than I did when I first started. Um, But it was a grassroots effort. It really was reaching out to friends and to family to say, hey, I wanna do this, would you support me? And so in this city, obviously, elections um, can be big Mm. and have lots of folks in them and lots of money involved. Uh, That was somewhat the case because it was an open seat on the school board. Mary Stanton served for 24 years yeah. wonderfully. I think she's probably the longest serving school board member in our district and in the history of the district. So she did great work for 24 years. So the opportunity of a seat to be open didn't come along very often, mm. obviously. She was the tenure of my entire you know middle school to yeah. adult years in the city. Wow. Um, so I learned a lot, but the benefit was I really having Been in the community my whole life, having had her endorsement, I'm sure,
0: sort of helped. Yeah, yeah, correct.
1: Um, but when we were knocking on doors, literally getting voter lists and knocking on doors that are public information, we're not getting anything that isn't public. Um, they were my friends, they were parents from the schools, they were teachers. I had the Mm. support of the teachers.
0: Um, Were you ever on like the PTSA for your kids' schools? I was. And so that's how you meet a lot more parents and...
1: Correct. And yeah. and again, so growing up in Long Beach, I don't know how long you've been in Long Beach, but you know this is a big city, but mm-hmm. it is a very small, small town. town. Yeah. And so you run into people that you know from every yeah. part of your life. Uh, I go to concert in the parks uh, when I can during the summer at Los Cerritos. And when I was a kid, they were at Somerset in my neighborhood. But when I go there today, it is an amalgam of yeah. my entire life. So there are families there for whom I babysat their kids wow. when I was in elementary school. There are people that I you know, have kids the same age. There are people who are elders from my church. So yeah. so everybody I know wow. could potentially be at concert That's in the crazy. park on a Wednesday. Um, and that that really is what propelled my win.
0: So when you run, and again, I apologize if these are just ridiculous questions. I don't want to waste your time with them, but when you're running on the ballot, you're running for your little area, right? Or it's not like a citywide thing, but citywide has to vote for you.
1: No, actually, uh, for the school district, we are uh, elected by geographic area. So Long Beach Unified is divided into five geographic areas. Mm -hmm. So we have five board members. The city of Long Beach has nine elected council representatives. So um, there are nine districts for the city. There are five districts for Long Beach City College. All of those lines are not exactly the same. Uh, so one school board district is approximately two and a half council districts. So I, you know, have constituents in the seventh district, the eighth district and the ninth district.
0: And so these are, we're talking like very specialized elections and specialized ballots then that just go to these neighborhoods that you cover for your election.
1: Correct. But as part of the primary ballot, so as part of the local ballot. So in that particular year, I think there were five city council races, a mayor's race, three other Mm citywide races, and three school board races that year. So So we're at the bottom of the ballot.
0: Sure, unfortunately. But I guess that's what I'm getting at, because that ballot goes out to the entire city, right? So you are just running for your designated area, but if I lived on the other side of town, the ballot is the same, is it not? It is not. You will not see
1: my name on the ballot. So the ballots are printed very specifically to include all of that. So when you see... Uh, board items, like we just passed a board item that, that okays the fees associated with running and the printing of the ballots, that when you see fees associated with the election, it has to do with how many seats are up um, and how many ballots need to be printed.
0: Hmm. So, okay, we have, there's an election. How many people are typically part of a school board? Is there a set number? Or is it just whatever the districts determine?
1: Um, our charter our city charter uh, says that it's five for Long Beach Unified. So uh, LA Unified I believe has seven. Um,
0: so maybe it's based on the size of the district It could be. Okay so you have five people. I imagine each board member comes in with their own platform, this you know personal passion that they want to deliver to the district. How do you all balance? Your individualized platforms. Do you just like kind of take turns? Like, hey, this this month we're really focusing on my thing, and I promise in December I got you on your thing. Or like, how do you manage that for each year? Because how long are you? How often do you have to get a you know? Do you rerun for?
1: So a term is four years, and they're staggered terms. So I represent District One. So in one year, uh, District One, Three, and Five are up for election, and then two years later, Districts Two and Four. So in alternating years, there's an opportunity for new board members. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the biggest gift that this district, this school board has is that we are uh, collegial and professional and respectful of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, while we all may have ideas about what we personally believe is best for students, we understand that we are doing the work of all students, sure. all 72,000 kids across this district, and that our responsibility is to support the work that we have charged the superintendent and staff with. And so I'm really grateful that my colleagues and I uh, trust and verify the work that's happening in the district. Yeah, um, But there isn't a lot of that uh, personal jockeying for... Mm-hmm. I need to make my point. Mm. It really is about at the end of the day, in the six years that I have uh, been on the board with various colleagues at the end of the day, every colleague asks what's in the best interest of kids and teachers and staff.
0: All right. So we're back now in our last interview, you painted this wonderful picture of a school board that was fairly utopian, you know, board members working together uh, not jockeying for political points, uh, consistently asking, and I'm quoting you here, what's in the best interest of kids and teachers and staff? So particularly with that last question, you know, I, I imagine you're all extremely passionate about doing what's best for our students. So how, how challenging has it been to maintain equilibrium as a board when, when stakes are so high
1: You know, I think it's helped me personally focus more on why the work is more important than any of the politics. That the stability that we talked about last time, which can bring success and um, an equilibrium to the system, maintaining that in the midst of this kind of chaos I think has made me more focused than ever. At the beginning of the decision-making processes around our school's gonna close at all, if they do, for how long, the information that was coming at the district was changing every hour. It was almost as if we had to timestamp a decision or a conversation that This was Wednesday at two o'clock because by Wednesday at four o'clock, we had received new information that caused a whole nother set of decisions needing to be made. And so those first probably two weeks, it was moment to moment changes that we, or I as a board member really needed to trust that the staff was getting the information that they needed, was relaying it to us as necessary, and that we're working in collaboration on those decisions because there was no way to know what was happening minute to minute or hour to hour and as we now enter you know we're talking now when we're on technically spring break and so in the original decision making we were supposed to be coming back to the classrooms in five days yeah next week and clearly we are not and we are not going to see each other before the end of the academic year And so moving into that kind of long-term planning for me has made it essential that the work is about supporting students, supporting our most vulnerable students, making sure students have everything that we can give them so that they can attempt to be successful at learning now through June. So what started as a Oh my gosh, I can't believe we're going to be closed for 5 weeks kind of conversation is how do we help students learn? How do we support teachers who are trying to teach in new ways and support families that have not had the responsibility of this much support of their students learning before. So it has it has for me really laser focused us and me on the issues of equity and making sure that all students are able to learn and doing it in a way that makes the year meaningful and kids can actually do some learning.
0: You know, but at the same time, you guys are all, you're in the same position as all of us, right? You're, you're people and you are confined to a home. Some are, you know, busier than others. (laughs) You know, they, I know you said you have your, your children and your husband, and then of course you have your foster dogs and, and all that. And other people have, uh, you know, very busy homes or even maybe not very busy homes, but the idea of being confined is really hard for people. Plus, you know, as we talked about, you know, it's high stakes and there's just anxiety, not just around work, but just around life and existing right now. I imagine people are just a little feistier these days, uh, about their viewpoints in light of the circumstances, have you all done any work or had any conversations around just kind of having an understanding and a, a level of patience with one another that maybe wouldn't be afforded normally because, you know, of, of everything being sort of extremely heightened. You know,
1: we haven't had those conversations together as a board. So as this happened, um, we had one regularly scheduled board meeting. We have called two, three special board meetings for different reasons, passing emergency resolutions, uh, work around the superintendent search. But I think, you know, the limited conversations that we've had, there is that idea that we know how challenging it is for us and can only imagine what it is for some families. I think one of the first things that came to mind from folks who I know do advocacy work for me was we have now told people to be quote unquote, safer at home. And we know for a lot of families and a lot of students that they aren't particularly safe at home. Um, And like you said, some of us have the challenges of a full house and multiple people working from home, but for some families and for some kids, home isn't the safest place. Home isn't a place where they can concentrate on learning uh, for a variety of issues. And we're removed from that, and we can't fix that. And I think giving each other a lot of space and a lot of grace because in a time where we're navigating something none of us have ever seen before has become paramount for me. And even my interactions with some folks on social media, whether it's meal service didn't go smoothly for me and my family, or how come the school isn't doing this, or how come I had to wait in line so long? Understanding that those concerns are coming from a place of safety, and they're coming from a place sometimes of severe worry and almost panic that their student will get left behind, and that this will become an even bigger problem for their student as we move forward, because they're not able to access food or technology uh, or their studies. So I have been, you know, trying to give people space and grace. I've been the benefit of people giving me space and grace to not do this perfectly. Uh, But I think something that has been paramount for me is making sure that we make sure that students and families are safe in this time of great worry.
0: That's actually a perfect segue uh, into, let's go back in time and get back into our original interview. So then you get all of your information, I'm presuming, from reports that the superintendent brings to you, and that's kind of how you make your decisions as a group on what to approve and what to push forward. Is that kind of how that works?
1: Uh, It is. They don't all come from the superintendent. They'll come from the The executive staff as well. Oh, okay. And so at the beginning of the year, the superintendent, along with executive staff for each department, set out a series of goals of the things that they're going to work on specifically that year. Um, We know that all the work from one year builds on to the next, and you can't tackle everything in one year. So usually we're presented with a set of a few goals that, that staff are working on. And then throughout the year, they present to the board and say, this is where we are, this is what we're doing, this is the issue we're trying to address. And, and so that's how we keep tabs on what is happening. So there's a lot of conversation, there's a lot of reports back, but one thing that our board does that I don't know that other boards do, I think individually we all spend a lot of time on school sites. Mm-hmm. I will call up a principal, I'll get called to say, hey, we're doing this cool thing, can you come and visit? So individually, we all do our jobs differently because we're different personalities, we have different relationships within the community. But one thing that we started several years ago is we do board field trips. And so we pick something that the district is kind of collectively working on for a year. And then Mm -hmm. we spend a day or two in the fall or winter and usually a day or two in the spring together uh, with executive staff. And we go out and visit school sites to see whatever that particular policy is in action. So one of Mm. the first things we did. Like a walkthrough. Yeah, and almost more than a walkthrough in terms of we sit down and we get the data of the school, but then we go into Mm. classrooms and we observe, and we get to get down on our hands and knees and we get to ask kids questions and tell us why you're doing this and how is this working. And we do that with the littlest, we've done it with TK kids and we do it with high schoolers as well. I think the first year we did it was um, a few years into the implementation of the new Common Core math work? Mm -hmm. And how do you have a collaborative conversation around math? And what does that look like? And what does that look like with a first grader or a second grader? Um, So going out into classrooms and going into multiple classrooms at multiple schools to see the work that was happening and seeing, you know, being in North Long Beach in the morning at one school and walking through and talking to kids and then heading over to the east side, a little bit later and walking and seeing the same work being done and the fidelity to the work and how important it is across long beach that irrespective of where you attend school in what neighborhood you're going to get that rigorous quality education because we work hard to make sure teachers are supported and trained to be able to do that work um, in any school site across the district so that's always fun to go out so we've done things around technology and we watched, uh, at Wilson High School actually, we watched uh, a, I think it was an AP Spanish class, doing a teleconference with Lafayette's dual immersion program, hmm. and video conferencing with the little ones. And so seeing the innovative stuff that's happening on sites that meet and exceed and play into what the district's goals are is important to see. So last last spring they actually loaded us into the truancy van and uh, <laughs> was imagine around the school. sight of that.
0: I wish that was photographed and put somewhere just like, here are the school board members, all truant.
1: Uh There might be some on Twitter. Nice. I'm just saying you can go back and find them. I think Dr. Baker did that, but it was fun to roll up at a stoplight and watch people look into the van and see these ups like, sitting a there. <laughs> um, but I think that is a unique thing that our board does.
0: That's a real school for adults, by the way. Yes.
1: Uh, to learn uh, what's happening, not just on paper, but how it plays out in the classroom. Because we know that when you set policy at a high level and how it's intended to work isn't always how it ends up working on the ground for multiple reasons and how we make sure that we give the supports necessary so that the intent is, is met in the classroom as well.
0: All right, I swear, our first interview was so filled with foreshadowing it may as well have been written by Shakespeare. So you brought up a really great point about how the intentions of policy don't always translate to their rollout in the classes, right? So right now, this this is a problem that districts across the country are experiencing. So what steps is the Long Beach School Board taking to ensure that the intent of the policies you've made, you know, in light of the COVID-19 closures and, you know, is is it more difficult to have oversight when we're confined to our homes? You know,
1: it, it is. um, The biggest focus of staff at this time is to create those learning opportunities that are meaningful for students. And we're basically taking a preschool to high school system and having to pivot from a traditional, more traditional learning model into something that, while it may work for some of our older kids, or more tech-savvy kids, isn't a system that feels natural for all of our students.
0: And pivot feels less like, um, p- pivot is almost like a gentle way of <laughs> describing what happened because this is like pivoting at 70 miles an hour, Absolutely. right? Like, it was a very hard shift. It wasn't just like a a turn. It was like an, an abrupt, everything went flying kind of turn.
1: Right. And I think in those early days when we thought the temp, the, that the building closure was going to be temporary, that there was an idea that we were trying to create um, those opportunities in a way that Five weeks later, we'd be able to pull back together, make up for some lost time and some lost ground and move forward. And so even within the sharp left turn that needed to be taken, you know, two weeks into that, it had to be an almost an even sharper turn when we realized this was for the long haul. This is for kids who are trying to finish a math class. Um, These are for students who are on a a trajectory for reading in English art language arts acquisition that needed to be able to continue to do that work so that when we see each other again in the fall, however that will look like, that it wasn't six months of nothing. And so part of, you know, working with teachers and giving teachers the flexibility to be able to meet with their students in ways that feel comfortable to them and can help kids be successful, whether that's teachers that film lessons, teachers that do live check-ins, teachers that are just um, who are sending work and giving feedback on work over email or Google Classroom or in their lockers on their School Loop accounts, that that flexibility for students and teachers to innovate is important, but also knowing that not Every student is going to be able to get on board with that every time. And when you can't look in their eyes, you can't check on them as they walk between classes. We can't peer into their home if they don't invite us in, um, whether that's through a, a meeting or through even connecting with their teachers via their school loop account. I haven't seen the numbers yet. We're working on the data to see what percentage of our students are accessing the learning opportunities. And do we have students that haven't done it at all? And if they haven't, how do we get to those students in a way um, that is meaningful? We've had teachers in the past who have knocked on doors. We've had administrators who have called students and families, and we're limited to what we can do in that way now. Um, But it's more critical than ever to reach those students who may be struggling to connect. So it's really a tough time, and it's a challenge for for teachers and for administrators who want to support teachers and for us as a board who wants to support staff in whatever we can feeling you know somewhat helpless from where we are realizing that we can't yeah. we can't see kids we can, you know I even talk about with my own children sometimes I just need to put my eyes on them to know if they're okay and I'll know that by looking at them not by anything they say and so for us mm. not to be able to connect with each other and especially our kids to do that is a real struggle and I think will present challenges for as we plan to come back. How do we re-engage and reconnect with folks?
0: Yeah, you know, and I also wonder with regard to initiatives and policies, I remember, you know, four or five years ago, our district started to roll out a technology integration initiative, you know, Chromebooks, Google Classroom, and even further back, you'd find the integration of an uh, online gradebook, things like that. And now with the remote learning opportunities that we have, I, I, personally, anecdotally, I, I, I'm coming across many of our teachers who are wondering, oh, how do I access Google Classroom? How do I you know, integrate technology in any way? I, I mean, real basic need for using technology, and so, I guess my wondering is, does that shift how you and the rest of the board, and you know, uh, indirectly the rest of our executive staff in our district, does that shift or alter your oversight or how you push out rollout initiatives? Because again, we did we rolled this out four or five years ago, and now we have a, a, an emergency where teachers are just now finding that they have to start? Whereas maybe four or five years ago, some of this could have been learned uh, had they they, they taken this on earlier. Is this something that is going to alter once we get back to as much of a normal state as we can get to? Is this going to alter the way in which we roll out or have oversight?
1: You know, one of the things that's interesting about those programs that have been, you know, rolled out over the years is I think with any technology, you always have the early adopters. You have the folks who jump out when it's first available, they wait in line to pick up whatever new device or gadget it is. And then you have folks who move in a little bit later once they see that the early adopters haven't, you know, the world hasn't ended and it didn't explode in their hand or whatever it is. And then those who uh, reluctantly join later when it becomes the means by which we communicate. And I think this is a very similar thing that five, six years ago we had folks that jumped on board with um, the online learning platforms and all of the tools that uh, the different platforms avail us of. They've been able to share their learning with their colleagues and have brought many along to, you know, join in the fun and join in the work. And others have been slower to adopt because for them, potentially, you know, a second or a third grade teacher that the work in the classroom has been primal to how they've taught for their whole career and that's how they best see results with their students. And so integrating something new has been, um, has taken a little bit longer. And unfortunately the situation that we're in, um, COVID-19 has caused lots of us to figure out how to adapt to that new technology that we were reluctant to try, or we didn't see as pivotal to the work that we were doing. I had used Zoom a couple of times over the last several years, Um, had done video conferencing, I don't know, maybe six, seven years ago, and it was novel, wasn't anything that I thought would become a part of how I do my job on a regular basis. And I had to learn quick what that looked like, um, how those tools work. And it's uncomfortable, and I'm an adult who is interacting with other adults, but concerned about what people think of my ability or inability to navigate the technology that I'm demonstrating in front of them. So again, it goes back to that space and grace, but there is a real urgency um, for our students, especially around the equity piece. The digital divide um, is real, we've known that. We know when we started this, that about 12% of our students didn't have access at home. And for a couple of years, we've been working really hard to reduce that rate, but all of a sudden kids left school on a Friday and there were expectations, you know, for a week later for them to engage in a way that they didn't even have the technology to access. So it kicked in gear a lot of the work we were trying to do and that we had started to do in a way that was absolutely urgent for our most vulnerable students and it's tough but we have to do it because it's about the future of our kids it's about how they're going to learn for the next six months and how not letting this situation drastically alter how they're learning that has an impact for two or three or four or five years so it's tough but the urgency is really around um, equity and justice
0: for students yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping just on a personal note that we'll be able to look back at this time and say, oh, this was the moment when we realized that we had to change the way we look at homework and giving work to students because now we have a much greater understanding of what home life is for these kids and giving them one, two, three, four hours of homework a day like we had done in the past is just not equitable nor is it tenable for a lot of these kids to live healthy lifestyles. So I'm really hoping that, you know, five, six, 10 years from now, we'll be able to look back and go, oh yeah, that was the moment when we came together and recognized that our preconceived notions of what homework does and what we want it to do completely shifted.
1: Right. And I think- It also gives us the opportunity to see our families um, for what their real situation is for all of us. And that while we saw kids in the classroom who seemed to be balancing a ton of stuff, including all of the homework that was potentially being assigned, that as we strip all of this away, we still have students who are working essential jobs Mm -hmm. To help support their families whose parents may or may not have been able to keep a job Um, and so when we talk about essential and what's necessary for learning and how a student takes in information um, and receives information and critically thinks about information that this is this has forced us to stop and acknowledge inequities that we think we understood, but are laid Mm -hmm. very bare right now. And that it gives us an opportunity as we rebuild and reopen and recommit to serving every student in an equitable way to do it much more intentionally around what we know their needs actually are and not what we thought they were amongst all the noise and the busyness of the years before.
0: it's Is it fair to say that between now and when you started this position uh, years ago, that your understanding of education has developed exponentially from when you started to where you are now? Like you're just your understanding of the workings of pedagogy and and how schools operate and things like that?
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that got me most engaged as a parent, even before I was on the board, were the budget cuts in 2010 and 2011. Because I was at a school that when when layoffs were coming around and they were laying off the new teachers, that new teacher had been at that school for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I realized at that point that as engaged as I was, I didn't understand why that decision was being made now. So I actually came to a school board meeting and I voiced my concern about layoffs and listening to teachers. And I remember that I gave my public comment and the item came up and it was voted on unanimously without a whole lot of conversation. And I mm-hmm. sort of looked around like, wait a minute, what did like, I do? do y'all not just
0: hear my, my little thing? Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah. And what I realized at that time is if I wanted to be able to give valuable input, I needed to have been part of the conversation about six, mm. eight, 10 months before that. So not being shy um, and having been engaged and had relationships with folks in the district, I called the superintendent specifically and said, I would like to be more involved. Yeah. And so I was put on the strategic plan committee. I was put on the North Long Beach Initiative Committee. So I really started in around 2010, kind of doing a deeper dive into how, what the machinations of the district were.
0: So, you know, I understand that, you know, you came through to all this information through your deeper dives into the district and getting more you know, your hands dirty, if you will. What's one thing that if you could go back in time and make sure that every new school board member who's coming in, like, should learn this one thing to help them be an effective board member? As you look back, you're like, man, I really wish I had been trained on X. Because I know that there are teachers out there who are like, man, if I had only known, you know, this one thing before I came into teaching... I could have been ahead of the game. I wouldn't have had to take a whole year or two to, to figure that out only to, you know, it's like our, when you're a new teacher, no matter what you teach, no matter how many years you've taught, if you're new to that subject or new to that grade, your first year is kind of just a wash of learning experiences. You can rely on your tools, but you're like, man, now that I know what I know, I'm going to do this differently, but I wish I could go back and do it differently for those kids.
1: Right. so I had been a parent in the district for probably 13 years mm-hmm. before I was on the board. And so again, I thought I knew a lot. <laughs> and I had been coming to board meetings for a of couple youth, of the 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 years. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I had been coming to board meetings. So I knew a lot of how it worked on the outside.
0: Were you going to board meetings before you were approached to run? I was. Wow. So you you were in it. You I were was in it. it. This was not just one of those things where you were volunteering at a bunch of places and then a school board member happened to see you at all these places and go, "Hey, you this like you're a face that they knew in in the room." Correct. During the meetings. I see. Correct. And um, did you have aspirations to be a part of this? Is that why you went to these meetings or
1: I didn't. I really was doing it because it mattered so much to my mm. kids and it mattered so much to the community that I cared about. And watching the layoffs of hundreds of teachers um, I know was devastating for the community and the teachers, um, but I also knew it was devastating for the staff who had to do it. I actually saw the superintendent, the board meeting where those layoffs took place, he had committed to going to a PTA meeting at my kid's school like he did every Mm. year and answer questions. So he met immediately from being a part of that decision to coming to stand and be accountable to a group of parents. Yeah, the
0: firing squad.
1: Yeah, and – and he got pretty emotional yeah, about it. I can you imagine. can't do that kind of work and make those kinds of decisions and stand in the community that he was also, you know, born and raised in, his family works in, uh, without right. it breaking your heart. Right. So I think the deep care for my community and the deep care for my kids and students um, who I knew parents didn't have the opportunity to be an advocate in the way that I had the opportunity to do, that I felt a responsibility to, Mm. um, to try and make it a great place for everybody. And so that was why I always did the work, whether it was at schools or volunteering in other places, it's just part of who I
0: am. You, you actually is a perfect segue. You mentioned that our current superintendent is, was born and raised in this city. Typically, superintendents aren't from the city in which they supervise. Why do you think that is? And what benefits do you think can be found from having a a homegrown superintendent?
1: That's the million-dollar question in education, (laughs) isn't it? So we know that on average, urban school district superintendents stay for three-ish years or less. And uh, Superintendent Steinhauser is going into his 18th year as superintendent, uh, Carl Cohn was here 10 years before him. And so that's 28 years of- Consistency. Consistency and stability yeah. uh, that most urban school districts don't have the benefit of having. And I think when people ask what makes Long Beach different, it is the idea that there are, we feel a responsibility to each other. So 60 to 70% of our teachers live in our school boundaries, which means you run into your students all over the place, and you run into your teachers all over the place, for good or for bad. I cannot
0: go anywhere (laughs) in Long Beach without running into uh, a current or former student. And the irony is that when I first started teaching, the thought of running into a former student or a current student was mortifying. Like, oh, please don't let me run into uh, a student. And now, if I go out and I don't run into a student, I'm always kind of like, oh, where, where where everyone at? I didn't see anybody. <laughs> where, right. i look at? around
1: a restaurant like, I don't know anybody here. That's pretty strange. Yeah. Um, so the benefit of that kind of leadership is a collective caring for community. So when you have a superintendent who born here, raised here, seeing his grandchildren raised here, there, I think, and I can't speak for him, but I know for me that I know that the decisions I make are going to impact the community that I love. Mm-hmm. And so there's a care with which I do my work because of the care I have for my community. And I think when a school district has the opportunity to have people who have been invested, who invest in them the way they were invested in as a child, it, it makes the work that much more meaningful. So when you parachute into a space that you don't know, yeah. um, I would imagine We know that building relationships is the most important work that can happen on a school site, whether it's between teachers and students and staff and students, administrators and students. Also the hardest. Right, it's the hardest, but the most important work, because we know that learning doesn't happen if there isn't a relationship base. And so for someone to come in with lots of great ideas about how they think uh, education should work or schools should run, I mean, how long? Would you look at a person who walked in to so Wilson this is how we should do. and said, you should do it this way? Yeah, And then you ask, well, have you met our students? Have you met our families? Do you know the history of our community? So whether you're talking about things like our Cambodian immigrants who are coming in with trauma from genocide. Mm. Um, are you talking about redlining from the 60s that happened with our African-American families? Like, If, if you don't know the history of who our yeah. students are, how do we think that we can best educate them? And so I think that that is something that's immeasurable. I don't know that anyone else, um, whenever that day comes to be the next superintendent, um, just as Chris Steinhauser was not expected to be Carl Cohn, whoever comes next won't be expected to be Chris Steinhauser. But we all know that we value the relationships that we have within this community and we know that their participation in our lives outside of the classroom makes a difference in how we educate kids.
0: Okay, so it wasn't enough that in the months since our initial interview, you know our our planet has experienced a pandemic unlike anything we've seen in our lifetimes uh, but you know as the expression goes when it rains, it pours in, in that same time span, you know our superintendent of eighteen years announced his retirement, and because of the response to the pandemic it would seem that the process for selecting a new superintendent was sort of sped up and you and the board ultimately chose dr jill baker who had been the deputy superintendent in our dis- of our district for years can can you walk us through how this process went i i imagine this is a new thing for many of you not just because of the pandemic but you know be- because it had been nearly two decades since the last superintendent selection.
1: Right. So none of us as current board members had been part of a superintendent search. Uh, so while we did not have the experience of making that decision, we do have a lot of years of making good decisions together. And so while I don't think any of us were shocked when superintendent Steinhauser uh decided to retire in December and gave us notice about two hours before a board meeting. Um, We knew that it was going to happen sooner rather than later. He had been with the district a long time. um, So we knew it was going to happen sooner. When the process was put in place and voted on in January and February, it was decided that there would be An advisory committee who would sort through initial applicants and from that advisory committee they would make recommendations to the board to interview final candidates and the dates had actually been laid out back in uh, late January early February and our goal even at that time was to announce a, a superintendent a new superintendent on the May 6th board meeting which is not for a couple of weeks from now. And what happened, we absolutely followed that process that was laid out. We had put in extra dates in case additional days were needed to do more interviews of initial candidates or final candidates. So we had put in the bumper of a couple of extra days and the advisory committee interviewed six candidates um, actually I believe it was on March 15th. It was the Monday that school was closed for the first time. It was a meeting that had already been scheduled. It was, uh, held in at a hotel and it was held in a room where everyone had enough space, even back then doing the social distancing, lots of hand sanitizer. And those initial interviews were done that day and recommendations to interview final candidates were sent to the board at that time. So. Um, we had an extra day scheduled for interviews that we didn't need. And so the final interviews were done um, last week. I'm totally losing my mind on what dates are which anymore.
0: I, listen, look, there's no such thing as a calendar. It, it's, know, it's this day and it's, that it's day. It's a day today. And, uh, today is today, tomorrow's tomorrow is right. tomorrow. that's about it. So
1: on Monday of last week, Uh, the final interviews were held and then a board meeting was called for that Thursday to have a closed session and make a decision. And then that decision was announced at open session on Thursday morning. And as you indicated, Dr. Jill Baker, who has been our deputy for five years was unanimously chosen to be the next superintendent. And it was interesting to watch kind of over time To see some comments on social media and other places that they weren't sure that it was the right time for the superintendent to be retiring and Mm -hmm. i think we were far enough along in the process and committed to the process um, and the process was working at that time that it didn't seem appropriate to stop the process i think we would have considered that um, had we needed to but because the process was so far along before these decisions were made that it was absolutely the right thing to do to continue with the decision.
0: So you talked in our last interview about the need for consistency and community, and you know, you ultimately ended up with exactly that, right? With Dr. Baker, but I'm just wondering how it came about then that, you know, at the start of the search, the board opened its doors to applicants from outside the district and, you know, right, you know what I mean? Like how, how seriously... Were these outside candidates even considered? If if it really felt like we were trying to keep it homegrown.
1: So the beginning of the conversation with the board around the selection process happened um, in public in January, and we had a discussion around: Do we keep it um, to internal candidates? Do we keep it? Uh, do we open it up to a national search? Those were conversations that were had at the board meeting, and we understood that. California is different. So what what we ended up deciding was that we would open it up to people who had significant experience as an executive in California. And that's because of the local control funding formula, as well as um, collective right, bargaining right. and labor groups, that those are very important pieces of California education that perhaps, and again, this is pre pandemic that we didn't, that we thought would be too steep of a learning curve in addition to getting to know a new district. So the limitation on California was wasn't to keep other people out it was to make sure that as we bring in someone in a very large urban school district that we don't add additional learning curves and I think it goes back to we talked about how Long Beach is a big city with a small town feel that Long Beach unified we really when you stay within Long Beach unified and you be, you understand education to be like this. It isn't until you step outside of us that you realize some of the ways that we do our work is very different. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to give the opportunity for people who uh, had some background in how we finance our schools and how we work with our labor groups, uh, the opportunity to apply for the position.
0: So did you find that you had quite a few internal candidates and quite a few external candidates? I'm just wondering how you whittled the process down so so quickly because from an outsider's perspective uh a lot of us looked at dr baker as kind of the uh heir apparent if you will you know it was both uh, uh, a relief but also not a surprise when when she was announced so i'm just wondering how that process went for you all
1: so uh ruth ashley our deputy superintendent of education services i believe is her title So Ruth and our human resources department handled all of the minutia of the search. Mm -hmm. So the job posting, Mm -hmm. the gathering of of applications and letters, um, they pre-screened and, uh, worked through a process to those that were, uh, that met the criteria were then moved on to the advisory committee for, um, an interview. So the details of that I am not privy to because that was handled within sure. um, the HRS department and the search, um, the folks who were doing the search.
0: I that's interesting. Superintendents, they're just like us. Yes.
1: And so um, I was part. I was one of the board members. So there were two board members on the advisory committee: myself and Dr. Williams, who's the current president of the board. Um, so I uh, participated in those six interviews. And then obviously participated in the final interviews and the decision making. And I think what's important to remember about the way that it was done is the advisory committee had people from various parts of the district, from the community, um, our special education advisory committee, our DCAC, our Pacific Islander, uh, the Assistance League, Their um I believe is a list available, not of the people who were involved, but of the, of the community groups that were represented in that advisory committee. And there were 25 people involved in that process. And so the idea was that they represent constituencies within the system and they had an opportunity to interview six people and to, and make recommendations on who they thought the board should interview. And so that was a really important piece. That idea that we did, um, the town halls that were taped, reaching out to people saying, come tell us the qualities that you think are important in a superintendent. Those are critical to the work that we do moving forward. We have to take our cues, um, not only from the education community, but from the community that we serve. I know in the last interview, we talked about that the school board is accountable to the voters, um, because it is public education. So that opportunity for public input on the superintendent was critical Work And for, you know, many folks who, like yourself, said you thought there was an heir apparent, we still need to talk to everybody engaged. And we need to talk to our public to Mm -hmm. say, whether you believe there's someone who is an heir apparent or not, tell us the things that you believe our next superintendent needs to be focused on. And a lot of that work um, and a lot of those results came about. Um, from talking to people from the online thought exchange, were those ideas of serving students with the highest need, being equitable, uh, making sure that those who have uh, struggled in the past are given the opportunity to have input, that we're including student voice. So that advisory committee really brought those ideas to the room, to those six interviews. And when they made their recommendation, um, that came from those 25 people's different places in the world saying, we suggest that you interview those folks. And so even though we chose, we did that final interview and made that decision based on what we felt was best for the district, we did that as public officials, doing it on behalf of those that we serve and that those that we represent, and that includes students and families and staff and teachers. And so I was very cognizant in that whole process that I wasn't there making the decision that Megan thought was the best decision. It was Mm -hmm. that I needed to make the decision that is in the best interest of our district moving forward and our community moving forward. Um, And I am 1000% behind Dr. Baker and the vision that she presented and the work that she laid out that she wants to do together with the community and with the board And I think we are um, in excellent shape.
0: You know, you talk about consistency. We've had a, in our district, just a kind of a remarkable history, as you alluded to in our last interview, of superintendents lasting a very long time. And I almost wonder if part of the conversation, it's almost like when you're a little kid and you have those, you know, you must be this tall to ride the roller coaster. It's like you must be willing to, be the superintendent for X amount of years to, 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 be considered for the job. Is that something that is considered when looking at applicants in, in our district? Cause it doesn't seem like it's obviously considered in other districts uh, because we talked about, you know, so what every like three years or so uh, there's a tun- turnover of superintendents. And is that something that uh, the school board and the advisory board considers when looking at superintendents?
1: Um, I think for some people that was something that was important to them. One of the good things about that small townness of Long Beach is that I got pulled aside a lot at events (laughs) or in the store or outside in a parking lot to say, hey, can I, I couldn't make it to that meeting, but can I tell you what I think? And a lot of the things that I heard echoed from both staff and community members was, you know, we want someone who knows us. It's important to us to have someone who knows us. We want someone who's not doing this just for a couple of years and moving on those were themes that I heard from many people. Um, maybe I heard that in the advisory committee as well, but I think in how people applied for the job, I, I think people applied for the job who know the history of Long Beach, or at least I hope those are the people who applied for the job that, um, who know us, who know what we stand for, the work that we've done. And by saying that they wanted to throw their hat in the ring, that they were on board with the things that we've done and that, you know, they wanted to add their piece to the work that we're doing. That's what I hope was in those, those applications. But I know for a fact that uh, Dr. Jill Baker, uh, as she laid out in her comments after the appointment was made that she is committed to who we are she is committed to long beach and that the reason that she does what she does is because of her deep commitment to students and deep commitment to uh, serving students so i think there were a lot of factors that play into you know again when that search started in january and you look at where we are now it's it's an incredible a lot has happened in the world since then, and uh, I believe we are in the absolute best and right sure place. Has.
0: You know, when I was thinking about doing this sort of Redux interview, I really, I hesitated on whether or not I should keep the, the quote-unquote games and segments section of the interview. Uh, and I'm I'm still debating it for the other interviews going forward, but particularly I was really interested to revisit your uh your segments and, and we'll get to why in in a moment your it'll be clear why in a moment. But I wanna I wanna quickly go back and listen to the the segment that we started with, which was, you know, the build a school segment where you got to have the opportunity to snap your fingers and change one aspect of education across the country in one quick motion. What would what would that thing have been? And I want to quickly listen to what was your choice for then, and then we'll come back, and I want to ask my follow-up question. Okay, so our first segment, and I'm really excited about this one because of who I'm interviewing and who is participating in this segment, build a school. So you, school board member, into all of the, the machinery of education, you you see how things work and how they operate. But this, this, this is what I'm really excited about. Build a school is where you get to in a perfect world. You can snap your fingers and poof. Although I don't know why you'd snap your fingers and make a poof sound. Uh, but you can make schools all across the country with your weird snapping noises. Okay. Adopt one change. What is the one thing that you would effectively start tomorrow in schools everywhere? It could be you're gonna have a library that is enormous and limitless. You can have after school programs that are just so richly funded. You can have the coolest technology in every classroom. Whatever it is you wanna do, you get to do. What is that thing and why?
1: That's such a hard question because
0: I, I get paid to ask I know, the big the questions. Hard questions. Yeah.
1: Because school communities are so unique. Mm-hmm. And so what I would snap my fingers for one community might be different than the other. But I think something- But you're,
0: you're queen here. You it, you say goes. You get is. to be Beyonce for like one moment.
1: Oh, nobody gets to be Beyonce but Beyonce. Sh- but but sh- the say.
0: queen, you have the move. You can say, right. okay, Behav, you're doing it.
1: So I mentioned that my children went to Long Beach City College, mm-hmm. the Child Development Center. And I had the opportunity to witness and watch them learn- a million things through playing in developmentally appropriate ways Mm. from the time they were two to the time they were five. And then they went into a system where there were lots more boxes, Mm. literally to sit in sometimes.
0: Well, that's the whole thing, right? The system is built to emulate the assembly line. Yes.
1: So I am a big believer in play Mm. and learning through play and that the things that we learn in terms of gross motor skills and uh, body autonomy and relationships and negotiations and communication happen during play more than anything else. Hmm. So when you're trying to negotiate how to play ball yeah, up against a wall when you're five, you have to figure that out with the person that you're playing with or want to play with. So you have to figure out how to invite people in. You have to figure out how to negotiate what the rules are and what you're okay with and how much, how strong you are and how safe you feel. And I think there's so much to learn in those moments of interaction and play that I wish that we continued to do more of that in the early elementary years.
0: I could tell you that that is something that so many in this country need, because if anybody has ever played pickup basketball, And somebody says, hey, what's the score? And then it's a 30-minute debate over, no, you have four points. No, I have six points. And it's like, guys, it's literally a number is a number. How are we debating who has how many points? We should know the score, but we don't. And it takes so long because we're arguing about it. And so this idea of being able to negotiate, boy, we really need that skill uh, in in our adults that they didn't get.
1: Well, and those are the soft skills that when you ask an employer what they want now, they want someone who can communicate. They want someone... Mm -hmm. Uh, who's sure of themselves? Who understands themselves? So those are all those skills that we can't teach in a classroom, but they naturally were learning through play. That we pretty much told them at five or five and a half
0: that yeah. there's these other time things that are more important. There's a designated than you play
1: time. Correct. Yeah. You get twenty minutes here and a half hour here, and here's some structured games. Um, so I think the exploration and the ability for for kids to learn and explore through play through. Uh, Building Legos and dramatic play and puppets and animals on the floor—that that we learn a lot of lessons in that—and I think sometimes we cut
0: that off too early. Standards-based play? Sure. Sure. Or we—or would we revisit standards?
1: I think when you're learning the soft skills, that the standards you'll get there.
0: Mm. But and, and that'll just go through high school, right? Wow.
1: There's got to be time to figure it out. There's got to be times that are organic ways to be with each other that we haven't set up as an activity hmm. to help us be better together. I think.
0: So, we've snapped our fingers. Everyone is playing. Everyone is learning while they play. Uh, yeah, I, I could have definitely gotten behind that as a as a student. As a teacher, I'm gonna have to wrap my brain around right. how to uh, how to plan or play.
1: Well, and I said developmentally appropriate. So what's yeah. developmentally appropriate for a five-year-old is different than a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old. <laughs> I'm
0: ai I'm going to teach sophomores tag. <laughs> of course, yeah. You, so have to understanding
1: that there, it would be nice to have elements of play yeah. and unstructured learning at every level.
0: So just for a point of clarification, is it play or is it more approachability and relevance with students in terms of like group work and interactions, or is it, or are you strictly speaking about like gamification?
1: I think it could be either. Mm. And I think that's where I trust uh, innovative teachers Mm. to do what they love to do. Yeah. And when we let teachers do what they love to do, in addition to what we need them to do, uh, that that students find those spaces in different classes to do that work because they'll tell us those stories and then they'll remember those teachers.
0: Okay, so talked about incorporating play was your big thing. You kind of cheated a little bit, added a couple things in there, but it's not really cheating if it if it uh, wasn't explicitly stated in the rules. So I thought you did a really smart job. You're like the Bill Belichick of <laughs> of that segment. You just found you just found the loophole and went right through it. So, have the school closures changed the one thing that you would alter about schools and education across the country, or is incorporating play still your choice?
1: You know, I've thought about that answer off and on since we did the interview, and wondering, you know, second guessing myself and and wondering if it made sense. And
0: oh, I think it totally made yeah, sense. Yeah.
1: Um, but it's not always the right like academic answer to give sometimes. Um, but I think, if anything, what we're going through now has showed us that we have to be open to ways of learning that are organic. And so, you know, the number of folks who are and kids who are doing puzzles and who are built you know, drawing kinetic little playgrounds on their sidewalks for jumping and learning and that we know that we have the ability to learn through what can be seen sometimes as play. Mm -hmm. And I think that this has slowed us down to really examine how do we get kids to learn while they're at home in a space that they're so comfortable in. And mm-hmm. a lot of parents are doing it through kind of those gamifications. Um, it isn't they're sitting them down at a table and giving them their books necessarily. It's figuring out creative ways to get them thinking, get them moving. And and I think we're going to have to continue that for logistical purposes, depending on what school looks like when we come back, um, if, when we're talking about physical distancing and not necessarily having the ability to sit close together and huddle and talk. If that's something that's limited, how are we engaging um, the playfulness and the intrinsic desire to learn and be together while maintaining the distance we need to? I think it's just causing us to reexamine some of the basics that we may not have chosen to incorporate as often. And we may just have to get back there to to be able to build back up.
0: Yeah, I've I, I too have been thinking about your answer on and off over the last few months, but especially since the school closures began uh, way way back uh, March thirteenth, and I just kind of wondered how we can incorporate more of this play or how we can incorporate more of anything that drives our humanity into remote learn, learning, you know, it seems like right now we're just so focused on content delivery that the personal touch is kind of being lost. And I'm wondering, you know, how how we, in, you know, incorporate more of that or or what your view is having been on both sides of the educational spectrum to incorporate this into our homes, not just into our classrooms.
1: Right. And I think that's kind of where the push pull is around this idea of remote learning and that our teachers and um, our staff really want to make sure that students don't fall behind, that there is content that some students need to learn, especially those who are promoting to new grades or new systems. So our high school seniors who are graduating, who uh, may be going to, to college or to junior college, um, and for eighth graders going into ninth grade and fifth graders going into sixth, that there is a A responsibility around content that we're very cognizant of. And then there's families at home and caregivers at home who don't have that understanding um, of content or who do, but don't feel like they have the strengths or abilities or gifts to support that work in a really meaningful way. And so I'm watching, you know, through people that I know and and kind of observing what's happening in social media and watching that I absolutely understand that families and caregivers and whatever support systems are in a home for a student, they are doing their absolute best right now. And that it isn't the same. It isn't a classroom in the kitchen. It is how are they supporting learning during an international pandemic? And so how are we supporting learning um, at a time when we're all... Distracted and concerned and nervous. And so for our littlest ones, whether that's singing songs with them or reading stories to them, maybe not stories that go with whatever their class is learning, but sitting down and doing stories nonetheless, that those are the ways that learning is happening. And for families, they're concerned that it isn't from a pedagogical base necessarily and being concerned that their student will lose content but also grappling with their limitations on being able to be a classroom teacher because it isn't a classroom. And, and I think that's those two worlds feel really far apart right now. And, and I Mm -hmm. know teachers who are, have children of their own at home are being teachers in some hours and then being the parents of learners in other hours. And, um, I'm very aware of the, the tension that sits between those two and the potential, you know, rise in who's doing what, where, and how are you supporting, and it's not enough here and not enough there, um, because it comes from a place of genuine care and concern for students on both sides, both the teacher and from the, the family supporting that student. And so that's the place where I think there's a lot of work to do around how we're communicating how we're letting families know that the support that they're giving is enough and letting teachers know that the work that they're doing is enough and helpful. And they, um, if they have a student that they haven't been able to reach, that isn't necessarily on them, that we have to support them in that work as well. So I think there's a real need to to help, help all of us come together in the middle of the professional side and then the home learning side of it to ensure that everyone again has that space and grace to do the work with the intention that students need to learn. And we have to learn in new ways until we can be back together again.
0: So we're coming up to the final portion of the interview. I want to go back and revisit the extra credit assignment that you gave to the pod class audience, but then I'm going to come back. and I'm going to ask you what your new extra credit assignment is. And then I have a kind of a fast little final bit of questions that I want to get you out on. So let's go back and listen to your original extra credit assignment. Okay, so now we've come to what I always feel is the saddest, it's bittersweet portion of the show. It's bittersweet for me because one, it means we're nearing the end of the show. But I also love this segment because I really get to uh, learn something extra and I get to see what is going on in the soul of my guests. I get to really mm-hmm. crack that nut and really get where they're going in life and where they want everyone else to go in life. Extra credit. All right. This is where... I always did the extra credit. The, the perfect. So everyone else, you got to do this extra credit. This can be... This is an assignment that you give to the podcast audience. It could be anything. It could be read this book, check out this article, watch this show, binge it, visit this country, anything you want to be that's what makes it extra credit. What is one thing you would like the pod class audience to do outside of their normal work?
1: I love to read. Mm. And I have diversified what I have read. I have read a memoir. I read nonfiction around criminal justice reform. Um, I read The Fire on High, which is a, a, a wonderful young adult novel that I just read a couple of weeks ago. Um, But right now I am about two thirds of the way through the New York Times project, the 1619 project, which is looking at the year 1619 and its 400th anniversary of when the first 20 enslaved Africans were brought here and Mm. what the implications of that day were on our history. And um, it isn't a reimagining of history. It is a telling of history from a perspective that isn't told and I don't ever remember being taught. Yeah, Uh, to center how um, that day and the enslavement of people built this country Um, from our economic systems to our healthcare systems. It is fascinating and heartbreaking and terrifying and an incredibly important piece that I think everyone needs to read. Mm. And if I had my way, every history class in our country, but especially in this district, would look seriously at using the pieces of. Um, Like I said, I am three quarters of the way through, um, and it frames so much of what is relevant today to even things we talked about today, whether it's redlining, um, fascinating things about um, the economic system and how accounting is done and how that harkens back to what was done on plantations. It's, It's incredible. And um, I am different today than I was when I started reading it on Sunday. Mm. And I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, that's that's amazing. I'm going to have to check that out for sure. Uh, it, you know, it strikes me that this is yet another example. When you talk to people about the insidious nature of racism and the systemic nature of racism and how... <laughs> You know, we can talk about culturally, you know, how far we've come and, um, you know, how the system might be built today or how we perceive it to be built today. When the reality is the foundations of everything we've built and the elements of those foundations are still found in everything we have today. And when it's essentially all traced back to this one truly heinous act to groups of people, uh, it, it really calls into question the lack of education that people have when they say, you know, let's move on already. Let's unite as a people. It's like, well, we're not, no matter how much we unite as a people, it's the system that is so pervasive that, no matter how much unification we have, it it, it can't possibly last unless we change the system.
1: Right, because the system was built intentionally Hmm. on the backs of enslaved people. Wow. And like I said, the the article that I'm about to start is on music, uh, but the ones that I've read have been about accounting and how accounting, you know, even depreciation of, of, um, property in my husband's an accountant. And when he, he read it as well, he said, everything I do is based on what was started on the plantation. Wow. And so the next one was the gridlock in Atlanta.
0: Makes me hate taxes even more, by the way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. But even like the gridlock in Atlanta on the highways, because yeah. highways were built to separate communities and keep people in their place yeah. was intentionally done.
0: I mean, yeah, you, you notice that there aren't any freeways near Beverly Hills, right? Correct. Yeah.
1: And so so much of our institutions as you say not only are there remnants of it the intentions of those systems were to keep people in their place and so how do we uh, tell that story accurately in a way that i don't feel like was done for me to make sure that my kids um, and kids coming up see that and also understand that the greatest expression of patriotism is trying to make our country what it intended to be, mm-hmm. which is better. And and no one, I think, based on what I have read this week, um, our African-American community has done that more than any other community to try to make us who we were intended to be and not how we were started out. So,
0: Okay, so I fully recommend the 1619 Project as well. It's amazing and definitely worth the read. Uh, it's it's longer than you'd expect it to be, it is. Um, but it, but it, but it's not dense at all. I mean, I mean, it's heavy, right? <laughs> like I wouldn't suggest a binge read or anything. Like take some time to sit with it a little bit. Um, but in the time since th- our initial interview, what else have you come across that you would like to assign as extra credit? And again, it can be a book, TV show, movie, uh, hand washing routine. Honestly, the time to assign extra credit is now because the ratio of people who are listening to this show who also have extra time on their hands is approximately one-to-one. One. So assign away.
1: Uh, so if you haven't finished up the 1619 Project, they did follow it up with some podcasts and they are working on some student versions as well that I highly recommend. Um, for some- How dare
0: you recommend my competitors?
1: Well, when they're finished with this and they have all of that time. They can go back, <laughs> especially there's an essay um, about music that's in the 1619 Project that I read and I understood. But the podcast with the actual music in it absolutely wow. brought it to life in a way um, that made me comprehend it more. And when I went back to read it again, I found new things to learn. So I would highly recommend that, especially if you love music too. It's just um, top notch. Um, I think the extra credit. That I would give aside from a lot of hand washing and, uh, wiping down the handles of the refrigerator, which seems to Mm. be open almost all day in my house for some reason (laughs) with my adult children followed closely, um, second to the dishwasher, uh, that seems to go.
0: I know I've never done more laundry or dishes in my life.
1: Yeah. It's been exponential. I'm not sure how (laughs) it's all happened that way. Um, But I really recommend people just taking care of themselves and each other. And I think there's a lot of expectation in the time that we have. And for some, it is do more, uh, know more, learn more. And, Mm. And I think that that can be helpful for some folks. But I also understand that the world is a really unsteady place right now. And so my capacity right now to absorb information is limited. So I'm, you know, taking in what, you know, the city says, I watch the city updates around what's happening in long beach. I don't watch watch, um, national press conferences about what's happening. That is not oh, a good for you that I find, um, information that is helpful to how I live my life, but I take care to know what's happening locally in my community. And I think that that's important. Yeah. And I think my kids have monopolized. We have one TV in our house. Uh, we have always been a one television household place. And so my, my adult students have been using this room with the TV as the place that they take their online classes. Cause she's still in college, but she has to get up early and mm-hmm. <laughs> zoom into a six thirty class, which would have been a nine thirty class in Massachusetts. Um, So I haven't found myself watching TV and that's usually something that I would do to relax and find some rhythm in. Um, So I have found myself uh, taking in the news that I can and leaving a lot of the other noise behind. So I was on Twitter a lot uh, for political reasons, for it's where I get my news and have really found myself limiting the amount that I'm taking in because it's it's too much. And so yeah. I have been listening. To-
0: oh my gosh, that was the same way. I, my, after that first week, I don't know if you have this feature uh, on your phone, but on my phone, I have this feature that tells me every week where my screen time, you know, like how, how, how much screen time I've, I've used. And it's kind of unfair because it could be for texting. It could be for uh, reading an email, going on social media. It's like anytime I've used my phone, basically, uh, looking at, you know, photos of my kids, whatever. But after that first week, (laughs) my, my phone said, your screen time has gone up 48%. And I was like, oh my God, I, I, you have like, yeah, you got to cut down some of the social media because it'll just make you crazy.
1: Right. And I, and there's, we're at a point where the information isn't changing hour to hour anymore. We're getting to the point where it's around, um, long-term planning For what's next. And it used to be, again, at the beginning, it was minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day was different. And now, as we enter this phase of holding steady and staying at home and Mm -hmm. continuing to stay safe, um, there's a lot more opining about what people think. And I'm just not here for that right now. So I found myself uh, putting my phone down. Uh, I am a puzzle person, not just a physical puzzle person, but um, the little games that you kind of have to unblock the maze and
0: get the, mm-hmm. get the limits, logic all yeah. the logic stuff. Same.
1: because I have found that when I feel like I can't control what's happening in the world I can control putting puzzle pieces together I can make something mm. whole again in that act of what would seem at the time a frivolous gem game on my computer is a really soothing thing to put things in order and to make things right and so using I know that that's something that I find that helps my brain settle down. And as I would write it off as frivolity another time, having my brain put things in order has been really helpful for me because a lot of this feels so out of control. And so I think people need to recognize the things that are self-soothing in a way that isn't harmful (laughs) all the time. uh, So that we can be better for each other.
0: Yeah. I think that's really well said, especially the, the part about how there seems to be this pressure to, you know, quote unquote, take advantage of, you know, this time by being way more productive or doing, you know, something. And, and it's not always uh, helpful. Uh, You know, just the other day I, you know, was sitting in the house and I was feeling just kind of low and I realized I hadn't been outside in like a week. And I was like, I'm just going to go outside and read. And just the idea of going outside because the weather finally cleared up just made me feel a hundred times better. But my first inclination was to grab an educational book to read because it's something that I want to do in terms of like professional development and all that. And I got about six pages in and I just found myself rereading the same sentence again and again and again. And I was like, I want to read, but like, I just, my brain is not, doesn't have the capacity right now to do this. And so I put that down and picked up a, a, like a, just a fun read, like a a book, just a a memoir. And I I read the, like, you know, not the entire thing, but I read so much of it in that one sitting, which is not normally something that I do. My attention span is not always that long, but it was just like, you, you don't realize how much your brain your you know your soul, if you will, need something like that. It's almost like um, when you find a plant that is kind of limp and then you put water in it and it fills up all of the soil and you're like, oh, did I overwater it? But then you look at the plant and nothing happens. And you go, oh, maybe it didn't need the water. And then five minutes later, you look, the water's all gone. The plant is fully filled out, <laughs> like standing erect again. you're like, oh, I guess I didn't realize just how badly it needed it. And that was that for me. It was just I didn't realize how much I needed sun And to just do something that wasn't focused on my, my, my vocation and, and, and in some cases avocation as well, but, uh, something else, something different.
1: Right. And I, I have to say, I am deeply aware of my privilege in that. I have time to do puzzles. I have, um, the space to worry about the news and so many in our community right now, their focus is on surviving. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I have one son who is considered an essential worker who goes out and deals with the public every day. And I worry about him every minute that he's not here. Right. I worry who's he in contact with. Is he wearing his mask? I have hand sanitizer that he has to like basically hose down with before he comes back in the house to keep, you know, a compromised family member safe. And that's me worrying about one of us and understanding that we have entire families who don't have the time to pick up a book or to play a puzzle game on their phone because all of them are simply surviving. And that this is one more experience or one more trauma that they have right in a lifetime full of traumas. And I know for some of our families, this is a first big thing that they may be experiencing, but for a lot of our families, it's just one more thing and keeping that perspective, um, has been really critical for me,
0: right? And 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 I completely agree. And that's sort of why I prefaced this this whole segment with, you know, the ratio of people who are listening to this show, right? You know, it's like the, these are the people who will have who have the time to do some sort of extra credit. But recognizing that, yeah, there's we're definitely in a, a a privileged position. And I too, you know, my wife's as you know, my wife's a physician, and that is something you know, it's like she comes home everything comes off right in the shower. And that's really hard because we have two little have little ones and like, they just want to run and grab her and just like, Whoa, 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 hold on. Let right. mommy take a shower first. It's, it's um, you know, but again, as odd as it sounds like it's a privilege to have that as our baseline of trauma for this. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I totally recognize uh, what you're saying, but also it is important to realize that we're all going through this and experiencing this in some way. And whether or not we have the time, I think it's also important to, to, to search for moments, whether they be for hours or just minutes to, as you said, just sort of unplug, decompress, find something that will allow you to sort of be a little bit more whole again. Right. I think that's And giving
1: everybody, and giving everybody the space to to understand what that means for them. Yes, and, and yeah, exactly. Recognizing
0: it. that it's not just you that needs it, but the people around you that need it, and so making the effort yeah. to give them that space. Absolutely. So let me get you out of here on three questions. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start off with kind of a, a a weird one, then a bit of a downer one, but then we're going to end on a positive. Okay. So, but they're all kind of related. So the the weird one is what is the the weirdest thing that you have done due to the fact that you are limited to your <laughs> to, to your exposure to your house and you know there's only so many hours of the day that you can find work to do or whatever like what's kind of the weirdest home quarantine thing you've done
1: hmm the weirdest or the well like,
0: like for me yesterday I completely emptied out the refrigerator cleaned it out and then reorganized it because I thought oh this could be more efficient <laughs> I just reorganized the entire refrigerator and then I took a photo of it and sent it to my wife. Like, look what I did.
1: Right. Look, you were able to like put something back together and clean it and organize it and, and make it right. So I can absolutely get on board with that. Um, I think for me, I, I have been waiting for that moment. I have sort of cleaned the refrigerator and I have cl- obviously cleaned the bathrooms and I bleach nonstop, but I have not done a deep, deep, clean of my house I've avoided Mm -hmm. that so clearly it isn't that I haven't had the time it's that I really am not a fan of doing deep cleaning Um, I think one of the things that I find myself looking forward to every morning which is um very strange because I'm not a garden person I don't um my dad was but I am not let's go out and plant things kind of thing every morning at some point with my cup of coffee in my hand I go out and I look at the garden uh, we planted some tomatoes, so oh look, there's a new leaf on the tomato plant. Look, the strawberry is turning red. Look, there's more roses on the rose bush. And it takes five or six minutes every day, but I find myself circling the kitchen and and realizing I should go check on the garden.
0: <laughs>
1: it's not a big garden; it doesn't do much, but I feel the need to go check on it every day.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then it'll be weird when you get to a point where once we normalize, quote unquote. You're like, wait, I haven't checked on my garden in a a couple of days. (laughs) Right. What is it doing? Oh, no, now I have to continue. Exactly. What is something that is kind of getting you down about the whole global pandemic situation? What is something that is frustrating you that you would like to see more people address?
1: Um, I think for me in the last couple of days, I am disheartened by the number of people who feel that the measures taken have been an overreaction. And I think we knew at the Mm. beginning that doing this well, the skeptics would then say we overreacted. Um, but looking at how the trajectory is in California, which is still going up, we haven't peaked yet. Um, but has slowed because we're not New York. Um, I think the number of people saying, see, we didn't need to do all of this. um, Or we're overreacting. The number of people in the last couple of days has been really disheartening um, and a disservice to the people I think who are really vulnerable and to our healthcare workers and our frontline workers and our essential workers and our farm workers who are working hard to make sure those same folks are very comfortable and safe. um, I find it disheartening that They continue to be skeptics. And so that really bums me out.
0: Okay, so on a positive note, because I promise you I get you out of here on a positive note. What is one thing that when this is all over, you're gonna be able to look back and find that through this experience, you have grown in this area? What what do you think is going to be the one thing that you are already finding that you are growing in, or maybe that you hope that you will have grown in? uh, through this experience?
1: Um, I think it goes back to the question that we talked about earlier, that idea that, um, the real needs of our community are being laid bare before us. And I think we have an opportunity and a choice as we move forward and we come out of this to really choose to be allies and advocates for equity and for justice and so that those who are disproportionately impacted because of the state of our healthcare system, the state of our city, um poverty in our city that there's an opportunity to really decide to be better humans and be better in community and i look forward to taking on that challenge
0: that sounds lovely i think that is a really great way a place to to end it here thank you so much for coming back and doing the first ever uh, quarantine redux interview. Uh, it, it's it's going to be a long one. Uh, we're hitting the two-hour mark here. I hope that you and your family stay healthy, safe, and uh, sane in these crazy times. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to the days when we can I'll get back together. I, I hope you don't take offense that the next time I see you, I'll probably give you a big hug uh, because the, the idea of handshakes and formalities just seems completely archaic at this point.
1: Agreed. And I am grateful for the work that you're doing to support students in this time, uh, your wife's good work, and I hope that you and your family also stay safe and healthy, and uh, I really look forward to all of us being together again soon.
0: Thanks again. Thank you so much for doing this, and uh, yeah, take care. Thanks, Jason. Okay, that is our show. I want to thank my very special guest, Megan Kerr. She can be found on Twitter, at Megan Kerr. And I want to thank you, my podcast mates, for coming back and listening to these very strange episodes going forward. Uh, Hopefully I'll be able to have an announcement for you sooner than later about the direction that the show is going in. Uh, But until then, please continue to come back week after week to listen, learn, grow alongside me. You can also find me on social media. I am on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok, because what else are you gonna do in quarantine but ruin social media for all the youth? You can find me under the username at West. During this time, I hope you are all staying safe, remaining healthy, staying sane as possible during these very turbulent times. And please, listen to all the doctors and scientists and all the experts out there. These are the people that you would go to if you had problems with your computer. You wouldn't go to a politician to solve your computer problems. You would go to the experts, right? So please listen to the experts. Understand that we're probably in this for the long haul. And as much as we would love for this to go away because we are yelling about it, It's not over until the experts tell us it's safe, so please listen to them. Please don't congregate in protest. Uh, Yeah, continue to wash your hands, social distance, support local businesses, and just take care of one another and be kind to one another. That's all for this week. Until next time, pod class dismissed.